Well, we are blessed this morning to have Randy Patton with us once again. Uh, Randy was encouraged to hear about how much uh, we have benefited over the last year. As uh, folks have told me, they've continued to listen to the recordings of when he was here last year and taught on biblical counseling and preached on parenting. Uh, and so we have him with us again. He was the guest speaker this weekend as we hosted uh, the Biblical Counseling Conference for the first weekend. And so we asked him to come back again uh, for Sunday morning and, and bring us the word for uh, Sunday school and for the main service. Um, uh, let's see here. Yeah, so Randy, and sorry for this, Randy, but it's true. He's been involved in training counselors almost as long as I've been alive. <laughs> Nearly 40 years, Randy has been training counselors. Uh, and for 18 years, he was executive director of what is now ACBC, was then called NANC. And he still is involved in training counselors, equipping Christian workers, advising church leaders, and of course in the ministry of the word as he's doing with us here this morning. And he does this work through Team Focus Ministries. And Randy, is that on your notes? I think it is. Teamfocusministries.org. So you can get on there for more information about Randy's ministry and ways that you can support that. Uh, and best of all for us, Randy is a gifted Bible teacher and preacher. And I was telling him last night, he brings God's word with a bracing clarity and authority that is uncommon. And so we're thankful for that and ask that you would come do that for us now, Randy. Well, thank you, Jason, for that very kind and gracious introduction. And uh, as I think, uh, God will probably forgive him for those exaggerations. And maybe uh, forgive me for enjoying them as much. <laughs> so it's great to be back at the Calvary Bible Church. Every time I've been here, I've been well treated, and it's been such a joy to, to be here. And I'm honored. To, you know, it's always encouraging to a preacher when you're invited back the second time. So uh, thank you for the second invitation. It's really encouraging to me. And I uh, look forward to this uh, time together. Uh, find your notes, please, that are entitled uh, Dealing with the Spiritually Cold and Rebellious. And uh, <clears throat> while you're uh, finding your notes, let me just say that uh, I'm excited for your church and uh, excited for the way you've handled this uh, difficult challenge with the health challenges that uh, my good friend Dan Kirk has faced and your beloved pastor. And I'm Continue to pray for him, as I'm sure you are, and I'm pleased. Looks like your church is in a good position for the future and for future ministry. And uh, not every church handles long-term pastoral transitions as well as you folks have, and I commend you for that. So well, let me lead us in prayer, and then we're going to talk about dealing with the spiritually cold and rebellious. Father, would you help us now as we think about this very important strategic uh, matter. And uh, I pray you'd help me to speak in a way that would be uh, truly helpful to these dear brothers and sisters in Christ. In our Savior's name I pray, amen. Okay, my subject is dealing with the spiritually cold and rebellious. And it might be helpful as uh, we start into this uh, outline for you to think about who do I know that fits that description? Almost all of us have one or multiple people in our lives like that. For a lot of us, uh, a spiritually cold or rebellious person would describe a family member. And it may be a parent, it may be a child, maybe one of our siblings. Uh, some of us who've been in Christian circles for a while have um, a former friend that we used to serve with in a church or in a ministry but that person's not served. In fact, they're not even walking with the Lord these days, and it's just the opposite. They would fit that description of being spiritually cold or rebellious. Um, the, we've been here this weekend for a counseling conference, and any of you who do biblical counseling undoubtedly can think of counselees, some of whom were very open and teachable, but there were others that from the time they came in and sat down, the attitudes like this or like this, resisting. Some of us have friends from college that we thought we'd be serving Christ together in the future, but uh, they're now cold-hearted 
and rebellious. So if you've got that person in mind, I think it'll help you as we move through this. Let me uh, get us started, but let's talk about some perspectives as we think about ministering to the spiritually cold or the hard-hearted. Here are some perspectives and five thoughts or perspectives on this that have been very helpful to me. The first one is, I think all of us need to remember that all of us were spiritually cold or rebellious at one time. I mean, that's talked about in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, where the scripture says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." So as you're thinking about somebody in your circle of influence or circle of friendships who's spiritually cold or rebellious, a good place for us to begin would be to remind ourselves, except for the grace of God, that would be me right now. Thank God for his grace on our lives. A second perspective is to remind ourselves that spiritual ministry is a team effort. Spiritual ministry is a team effort. This has been so helpful to me as a former pastor um, with caring for a congregation. It was so comforting for me to, to remind reminded of these truths. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 7 to 10 says, So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Uh, an overriding theme from that paragraph of scripture is the fact that spiritual ministry is, is a team effort. Um, sometime you might be uh, encouraged, like I was, to sit down and think about how many people influenced me or pointed me toward Christ before I repented and trusted him. So I was saved at the age of 10. I grew up in a Christian home. So when I started making my list of people that had nudged me toward Christ or pointed me toward Christ, I'd start with dad and mom. But I had grandparents that encouraged me in my spiritual endeavors. But I had child care workers uh, as a little baby or child growing up that made going to church fund. And uh, then later, Sunday school teachers, vacation Bible school teachers, uh, babysitters that were Christians and modeled things. I mean, I saved at age 10 in my list. I get 20 people that were pointing me toward Christ and influencing me. And so I just want to encourage each of you, uh, you may be playing a critical part in that chain of influence that's nudging people to consider seriously the claims of Christ. And so if you're particularly concerned about somebody that's spiritually cold or rebellious, and they're in your circle of responsibility, and, and you just feel the load, I mean, the, the burden to get them turned toward God. Sometimes we take on the perspective that it's all on me as a parent, or it's all on me as a spouse, or it's all on me as a, as a child to get my parents squared away with God. No, I would encourage you, remind yourself, it is a team effort. You're part of the team. The team is not just you. Here's another perspective and that is to think in terms of sowing, watering, and reaping rather than just reaping. When it comes to spiritual ministry, um, if your church experience has been like mine growing up, there will be testimony times where if somebody is able to give a public testimony in a small group or a church service, if a person is able to give a testimony and talk about leading somebody to Christ, there's typically a whole bunch of amens and people come up and talk to them afterwards and encourage them. We all like to hear about someone repenting and trusting Christ, the reaping. And if you have the joy of being there and maybe helping 
point somebody toward Christ and seeing them repent and trust him, I mean, that's a very, very special joy. What most of us have never heard is a testimony time where people are being asked, tell us a testimony time when you did something to sow the seed of the gospel. Let's hear some testimonies about what you've done to water the seed of the gospel. We have a reaping mentality in many of our churches, many of our Christian circles. And yet this, this scripture says in 1, Peter, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So think about the terms that are used. I've meditated on that and tried to understand what, what does that mean? And in my understanding right now, when we talk about sowing, I would view sowing the seed of the gospel as any direct ministry of the word of God. It's when you're teaching a Sunday school class, teaching a vacation Bible school class. It's when you're witnessing to somebody. I mean, it's, it's what I would call the, I can't even talk about it without doing like this. It's like the direct ministry of the word. You're explaining the gospel. You're talking about Christ. That's sowing, all right? Watering is what you would do to encourage somebody who's heard the seed to consider seriously the claims of Christ. So I would suggest that watering is when you have a neighbor that you know has just had surgery and you're taking a meal over and are offering to mow their yard or can I get your car washed for you or can I uh, do something else to serve you. Watering the seed is basically when Christians don't just talk the talk, when we walk the walk. When we live out our Christian faith, when we're kind, loving, tender-hearted, we're compassionate. When, when the way we handle controversy over whatever is going on in our culture doesn't lack for controversy. When the way we conduct ourselves in our speech and our conduct is different than somebody else, we are encouraging somebody to consider seriously the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and biblical theology. That's what it means to water. So I would encourage you, uh, as you think about ministering to the spiritually cold and hard-hearted, think in terms not just of reaping, seeing them change. Don't think in terms of just the end. Think about what can be done to sow the seed. Think about what you can do to water the seed. And then we continue to pray for the harvest. And then point D, I would encourage you as a perspective in dealing with the cold-hearted and rebellious to pray for wisdom, especially in your words. Let me show you a verse that I have probably prayed more than any other verse when I'm going into a hard counseling case. I love this verse. Proverbs 15.2a in the New American Standard Version says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. You know, there are times when you need to say something to a child or to a parent or a friend or a counselee, and it's a, it's a bit of a hard word to deliver, and it's going to be a harder word to hear. And you know, there are times when you can just say things in a way that just flat turns people off. And in a sense, hardens them. Well, that's not our goal. Our goal was that we would say it in such a way that they would receive it. And so many times I've gone into hard cases and just ahead of time, I'm just praying, God, help me to have the courage to say what needs to be said to them. But, oh, God, help me to say it in a way that they will receive it. And I would encourage you to pray for that with your ministering, especially to, I think, particularly to family members where sometimes they can be so easily offended because they interpret our advice or admonition as us thinking we're holier, better than thou or them or something. They can so easily twist and misunderstand. Um, pray for wisdom. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. And then <clears throat> there's a fifth perspective I'd like you to remember. And that is it's the Holy Spirit who convicts. It's not your job to produce change. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts. It's not your job to produce change. Think about the, these verses. In John 16, uh, verses 7 and 8, this is part of Jesus Christ's last teaching time before he's uh, going to be betrayed, crucified. And he says to the disciples, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Notice, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, judgment. He convicts of sin, what's wrong, righteousness, what's right, judgment, what's going to happen if you don't get right. Okay? Uh, This passage has been significant, has had a significant influence in my life uh, years ago because uh, in the church I... Uh, grew up in, while the Bible was taught um, accurately, the methodology of motivating people or encouraging people to make spiritual decisions was different than what this passage, I've come to understand this passage to say. I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, I grew up in a small rural church in southeastern Ohio, down in the foothills of Appalachia, right near where the Garden of Eden used to be. And... uh, uh, <clears throat> we had a small rural church. Our, our county seat had a population of 2,000. And um, our church ran about 80, maybe up to 100, 120, depending on when the last revival was. And uh, uh, I remember one of our revival services, or evangelistic services, on the closing night, the evangelist, after preaching, gave an invitation for people to be saved and we're singing an invitation in probably something like Just As I Am. And he gave an invitation for people to be saved. And then he gave an invitation for people to be baptized. Then he gave an invitation for people to join the church. Then he gave an invitation for people to renew their commitment to the Lord. And the invitation kept getting wider and wider. And uh, at one point, uh, people were going forward. At one point, I went forward. And uh, as the invitation went on, was prolonged. It came to the point where everybody in our auditorium had come forward except our high school music teacher who had been invited to the service by one of his band members. And I stood at the front looking at that man in the back thinking, that is the most courageous man I know. (laughs) And I also thought, Something about this is not right. And I just want to encourage you as you're dealing with the spiritually cold and rebellious, it's not your job to twist their spiritual arm behind their back and force a decision. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Take hope from that. It's the Holy Spirit of God's job to convict of sin. What's wrong? To convict of righteousness, what is right. And to convict them of what's going to happen if you don't get right. That ought to give all of us some hope and some encouragement as we think about people we care about who are cold-hearted and rebellious. Well, let me uh, move on. I want to talk to you about uh, an experience. Years ago, at the lowest point in my own life and ministry, and I won't go into the details, I'll just tell you that um, it was a very, very difficult time for me and things were being said about me, things like uh, I had preached a social gospel, I'd been charged by one of the leaders in our church with spiritual infanticide, you know, infanticide's killing babies, and I was charged with killing spiritual babies, which theologically I thought was impossible, but that was the charge. And um, one man charged me with being a heretic, which in my circles is the worst thing you can say to a preacher. And uh, I had an associate pastor that led um, a revolt and um, tried to get the leaders of our church to revoke my ordination and dismiss me as the pastor, stating that I was unfit for vocational Christian ministry. And um, during that period of months and during that, and it ultimately led to a trial uh, where the three men before whom I most wanted to appear successful were brought in to be our kind of our arbiters or our judges. And uh, our trial began at 7 o'clock one night and finished at 1.30 the next morning. And I think anything I'd ever done wrong in life and ministry had been brought to light and held up for display and discussion that night. And it was during that time that um, 
God was working in my heart, and it was obvious to me that I needed to make some changes in my approach to, to ministry. And um, what I did was I thought, just in my simple way of thinking, I thought, you know, the greatest, te- the greatest leader who's ever lived was the Lord Jesus Christ. Even non-believers will admit Jesus Christ was a great leader. So I thought, I'm going to study the Gospels to notice how did the greatest leader who ever lived deal with people? And uh, I just studied the, the Gospels, not, paying, not focusing particularly on what Christ taught, but how did he deal with people? What were the interactions like? And uh, all the Gospels were very helpful. The Gospel of Luke was particularly helpful because the Gospel of Luke records more physical details of how Jesus dealt with people than any of the other gospels. Remember, Luke was a physician. He's alert to physical things. And uh, so in my studies, um, I was particularly struck by, okay, how did Christ deal with failure? And in my mind, the biggest failure in the gospels is Peter. I mean, you think what he did about being with Christ for three years and then denying he even knew him? And so I studied carefully, how did the greatest leader who ever lived deal with the biggest failure in his life? And um, so here's what I learned. First of all, Christ warned him about the direction of his life. And I think we can all learn some things from how Christ dealt with failure to guide us in how we're dealing with people in our circle of concern, circle of responsibility and what's happening with them. He warned him about the direction of his life. He said in Luke 22, 31 and 34, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. I mean, Christ told him clearly up front, buddy, you are headed for trouble. I mean, you're, you're headed toward a cliff, spiritually speaking. Second, Christ expressed spiritual concern filled with hope. In Luke 22, verse 32, he says, But I have prayed for you, and that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he told him, I think you're headed toward a cliff, you're headed toward trouble. But I want you to know that I'm concerned. I've prayed for you. Uh, We might be saying things. I'm willing to meet with you. I'll keep praying for you. I'll connect you with somebody that can help you if you don't want to talk to me. But he expressed spiritual concern. Later, Luke 22, verse 60, records Peter denying Christ for the third time. Here's the next verse. Luke twenty two sixty one, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that look? The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You know what the next verse is? And he went out. And wept bitterly. I think the takeaway for us is when we're dealing with the cold-hearted and rebellious, and we've told them, I think you're headed toward trouble. I love you. I want to help you. But they're resistant. I think the takeaway is that after they fail, it's good for them if they face us. Or to turn it around, it's good for us to face them. Think about it. Some of you who have rebellious children or rebellious siblings, physically, you are the embodiment of the Christian faith. You represent Christ. You represent the church. You represent godliness. And sometimes you don't even have to say anything. It's just that eye contact. That's a reminder. Well, as you know, the story doesn't end there. How did Christ deal with failure? He challenged him to serve again. 
This is such an interesting passage. In John 21, verses 15 to 17, the scripture records. So this is after the resurrection, of course. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And there's some debate. Is he referring to the disciples or others think he's probably referring to the fish? Are you going to go back to your old way of life as a fisherman? You love me more than this, this or these? And he said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, I, under, I am aware, and you're probably aware too, that there's some change in the terminology on love. There's some, a little bit of change on the recommissioning. I think that the, the big takeaway for us is there can be significant life and ministry after failure. And he called him to serve. After colossal failure, he called him to a life change. And as we work with people who didn't listen, and then there's a big crash in their life, one of the things that we ought to consider doing is, when appropriate, calling them, okay, that's in the past. It doesn't have to be in the future. You need to get back on the track of following Christ and serving him. Well, with those thoughts in mind, let me talk to you now about some strategies to consider. And uh, I've got 12, and I don't have a lot of time to talk about each one. And what I'd like you to maybe put in your notes is just a, a little jog. These, these are arranged in what I would call a general order. So if you're dealing with a, a hard-hearted person, don't go home and say, well, Randy said to start with number one, and if that doesn't work, go to number two, and if that doesn't work, try number three. Well, you might consider them, but this is not a hard and fast order, okay? And I hope some of them will be helpful to you. All right, first of all, evaluate the individual, evaluate the person, and the ministry need in light of 1 Thess 5.14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Now, the major takeaway from this is don't treat everyone the same way, all right? But let's think more precisely about it. He says you admonish the unruly. The term unruly was a military term that was used to describe soldiers marching in formation and somebody's out of step. The person who's out of step, this is the, the word that was used to describe, they're out of step with Christianity. In other words, they may profess faith in Christ, but the way they're living, that's no, that's not the way a Christian is supposed to live. With those people, you admonish. It's the Greek word nutheteo, from which we get nuthetic, and biblical counseling used to, be, used to be known primarily as nuthetic counseling. So it means you talk to them. I mean, you admonish them about it. That's what it means. So when people are out of step with Christianity, the way uh, a Christian is supposed to, to act, you, you talk to them. You confront them about it. But then notice this. You encourage the faint-hearted. The word translated faint-hearted just describes somebody whose, whose spiritual faith is just weak. The, the way I like to describe it, it's a Christian who doesn't have any wind in his spiritual sail. <laughs> they're, just, they're just weak. They're just no wind in their sail. Well, with people like that, we come alongside and we encourage them. Through the word, through our testimony, through our expression of love and commitment, our caring for them. We come along and try to, in a sense, put some wind in their spiritual sail. And then notice this next one. You help the weak. The word translated weak was used to describe somebody who is given a load that, that physically they just, they just can't hold They're just going to crumble under it. All right? Uh, it's, just like, it's just overwhelming. 
the illustration that, uh, that, that comes to my mind is if while you're at church this morning, something happens at your house and your house burns down and everything that's in there, you're going to be weak. You're going to be just overwhelmed. And again, I hope that doesn't happen. But I mean, just think about something like that where just, where do you begin? What do you do? I mean, where are we going to sleep? I mean, you just think about the significance of something. That's what it's talking about. And it doesn't, it, it may be a, a diagnosis. It may be some other kind. It may be an automobile accident. maybe a hospital. It could be anything. But it's just like the person, it's just like it's too much. And this is where historically the church of Jesus Christ shines. Where Christians rally around and come to aid the person. And there's resources and and help. We help the weak. And then the last one, we be patient with everybody. That's probably the hardest one for most of us. Um, the problem is that word everybody. And, um, but we're to be patient. The, the Greek word for patient is makrothumia, long anger. In other words, we don't get angry, upset with them quickly. Just long patience. That's what it's talking about. So, uh, my first suggestion on how to deal with the hard-hearted is uh, evaluate the person and the ministry need and lie to 1 Thess 5.14. The second one is this. Uh, I'd encourage you to ask questions. An accusation hardens the will, but a question pricks the conscience. If you become alert to this, you'll notice several things in the scripture. One is you're going to notice, if you study the life of Christ, how often he used questions. And you know, every time Jesus Christ asked a question, he was not looking for information. He wasn't asking a question for his benefit. He was asking a question for that person's benefit. Nicodemus, art thou a ruler in Israel and understandeth not these things? At one point he says to the disciples, whom do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I just showed you how he dealt with Peter. You notice when he wanted to recommission Peter, do you notice how he did it? Three times, question, question, question. Because a question pricks the conscience and accusation hardens the will. One of the ones that uh, I find uh, very interesting the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And Malachi is writing, being used of the Lord, to try to confront Israel with their, their, their sin, their debauchery, their rebellion against God and his ways. And if you read the book of Malachi, it is just filled with question after question after question. And it's, it's almost like this. Malachi just rattles off all these questions. God rattles off all these questions, speaking through Malachi, and then says, and just think about that for 400 years and I'll get back to you. <laughs> the sign-off of the book of, of the Old Testament is a book filled with questions. So think about as you're ministering to your children, to your spouse, to those loved ones that you care about, uh, about how questions could be used. Here's another one. Use the why illustration. Now, in your notes, I've given you a copy of it, so let me just briefly kind of walk you through how I would use this, and let me, uh, let's just set it up. Let's say that I was uh, a pastor of a church, and it's in early December, and John, a member of our church, is home from college, and he used to be a faithful, his parents are faithful members of the church, but they've asked for prayer for him for the last couple of years because they think he's drifting spiritually while he's away at State University. And uh, he's a senior, and uh, he's home for Christmas, and I ask him out for breakfast, and we're sitting at breakfast. And after some chit-chat and hearing about uh, his life and how his classes are going and his social life and so forth, and I ask about the, the future, and then I'm going to ask him, and, and uh, say his name is John, I'd say, John, and uh, give me an update on just kind of how you would describe yourself spiritually. And I'd ask some follow-up question. How often are you attending church? How, often, how many times did you read your Bible last week? How many times did you read your Bible the week before that? And um, 
my analysis is that his parents have reason for concern. And so I would say to him something like this, I say, John, let me, uh, and I pull out my paper napkin or my notepad, and I say, uh, let, me, let me draw a little diagram that I think summarizes my evaluation of where you are. I would say that you're kind of at the why in the road. You're at that point in life, certainly as a college graduate soon, and you'll be making major decisions, heading, setting a direction for your life. And I said, you know, all of us can choose how we're going to handle life. And there's basically two options. You can either choose to love yourself and just do what you want to do, uh, or you can choose to love God and obey his word. And I, from what you're saying, my sense is that right now you're on the path of loving yourself and just doing what you want to do because you've not given me reason to think you're really committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to call you to do is to love God. And what you're going to find yourself thinking is, for me to make that kind of a change is going to be very, very hard. Living the way you're living right now is very easy. Because it's just the nature of our flesh. Just doing what we want to do comes natural to all of us. But what you need to understand is that as you go down the path of just living the way you want to, living by your feelings... What's easy now, it's going to get hard. I mean, the Bible proves that. For example, Proverbs 13, 15, King James Version says, the way of the transgressor is hard. John, say that with me, would you? The way of a transgressor is hard. I want you to remember that. Because one of these days you're going to remember, you know, pastor at lunch, at breakfast one morning, he reminded me of that. Because you're going to find out sooner or later, the way of a transgressor is hard. Psalm 32, 10 says this, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Paul talks about it in Romans 2.9 where he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Well, I want to call you to repent and head a different direction. And yes, I want to acknowledge it's going to be hard. That's why the Bible talks about us disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness doesn't come natural. We have to work at it. We have to discipline ourselves. But the good news is, as you pursue a life of following the Lord Jesus Christ, what starts out as hard gets easier. It doesn't get easy, but it's easier than the way of the transgressor. The Bible talks about that. For example, in John 13, verse 17, Christ is in the last teaching time, formal teaching time with his disciples before he was crucified. And he looks back on three, three and a half years of life and ministry, and he says to his disciples, happy are you if you do these things I've taught you. Now, John is significant. He didn't say, happy are you if you know these things I've taught you. He said, happy are you if you do these things I've taught you. In James chapter 1, verse 25, James says, that if we will be the kind of people who hear the Bible, we're not forgetful hearers, but we hear and obey, James says, we'll be happy in the doing of the word. And in Romans 2.10, Paul says, there will be glory and honor and peace for every soul of man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And I want to appeal to you to repent. To repent means to have a change of thinking that leads to a change of behavior. Repent means to turn. I want to encourage you to turn from living your way to turn and follow God's way. If you don't, and just as I'm talking with you, another passage that comes to my mind that I think maybe explains how a guy like you grows up in our church and our youth group and was so active just three or four years ago, who's now so resistant. I think your circumstances are captured by Hebrews 3 verses 12 and 13 which says, take care brethren lest there be not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And if your parents were to ask me, well what What's your analysis of how John's doing? I'd say, I think John's been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I call on you to repent.
That little simple diagram can be powerful and has been produced very fruitful for me with other people. Another option is to draw the do right, do wrong diagram. If you were in the counseling training conference and you watched the DVD where I counsel a couple named Trey and Deb, you've seen this. And it's basically just what I showed you on the Y diagram laid out differently. Um, in the DVD, I explained it in a little bit uh, different way or a little further detail. But uh, it's basically the same thing. Let's move on to point E. We're talking about strategies on how you might minister to a hard-hearted or rebellious person. Point E, I would encourage you to think about quoting a strategic verse uh, or a phrase often enough to make it memorable. And in my work as a counselor and my work as a pastor, there were times when I would be meeting with somebody and early in the conversation, I find myself thinking, this is the last time I'm going to get to talk to them. They're not coming back. And I just, okay, what do I want them to remember from this one? And what I have found wise to do is to find a particular verse or phrase, and I will repeat that so many times in that session that even if they're trying not to remember it, they're going to memorize it. So uh, here's some that are, that are my favorites. Uh, Psalm 13, or, excuse me, Proverbs 13, 15. The way of a transgression is hard. And I may talk to somebody for 20 minutes, and I can say that 10 to 12 times in 15 minutes. Or be sure your sins will find you out. Or here's one. Psalm 32, 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. So consider picking a verse or a phrase, then to be the whole verse, just a key phrase, and you just say it so many times that it's ringing in their ears, not just when they leave, but a month later, they're still remembering that. If you don't want to use a strategic verse, sometimes it's been helpful, I have found, to use a phrase that captures biblical truth. It's not a quote of a verse, but it's a phrase that captures biblical truth. Here are three that I would suggest. Just two options on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. It's true for all of us. Here's another one. Choices have consequences. Or here's another one. You can choose, John, you can choose what you're going to do, but you can't choose the consequences. I think some of you can see how maybe using that with your children or with a coworker, somebody you're concerned about, how using one of those verses or one of those phrases could be, could be helpful. Well, let's move on. Point F on our outline. Another strategy is to give them an appropriate track, booklet, book, or audio recording. In my experience, uh, cold-hearted and rebellious people are not going to read a book. And um, I have found that it's wise, though, to give them something that's short and helpful. What I'm showing you is one of my favorites. This is called You Can Trust God by Jerry Bridges. Uh, a number of you are familiar with his bigger book, Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts. But, you know, that's a substantive book. And in my counseling experience, I find very few counselees will work all the way through. I mean, it's just too heavy for most people, it seems like. This is just a little mini book. And it's short but it captures the main points from the book, uh, You Can Trust God Even When Life Hurts. And so going back to the illustration I used earlier, if I'm meeting with college student John as a senior and he's kind of got the wall up, he's being polite with me, but he's, he's not being warm to what I'm saying, uh, what I would do, I would take to that meeting a copy of this uh, booklet and say, uh, <clears throat> John, um, I've written, here's a booklet I brought for you. I've written you a note in the front. And I'd write a warm note saying I've been proud to know you and I'm praying for your future and so forth. And I say, I have a request. I want you to promise me that when you go back to your apartment or your dorm, you will put this book inside your Bible, inside the front cover or the back cover. Will you promise me that? And I say, I want you to do that because I'm confident that there's going to come a day when God's going to work in your heart and you're going to want to pick up your Bible. 
And when you pick up your Bible, I want you to be reminded of this booklet. And I want you to read it. I think you're going to find a lot of encouragement for you at that time. Promise me you'll do that. And just give them this little uh, booklet. It's wonderful. If you don't have it, I'd encourage you to get a copy of it. And it'll be a great blessing <clears throat> and to your own life. All right, point G. Another strategy is to question the reality of his conversion. <clears throat> question the reality of his conversion. <clears throat> Many people manifest an attitude where they're cold-hearted toward God. And the rea- reason is they're just unsaved. They're not really saved. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. So um, there may be appropriate times to question the reality of a person, whether or not they are genuinely saved. Point H, um, I would encourage you to talk about the potential impact uh, that the person's actions uh, will have on people he cares about. And part of the, the goal here. Thank you. Let's have a nice round of applause for this kind brother. Thank you, sir. So talk about the potential impact on people he cares about. In counseling, sometimes we have found that there's a a need, or there's, there's wisdom in building the guilt. That's a phrase, building the guilt. And on purpose... We will talk about things, say things that are designed to make the person feel bad. But we don't say it to make them feel bad. We're we're trying to build the guilt to aid their repentance. So, for example, one time when I was talking to a man who was in the process of committing adultery and leaving his family, and he'd been a Sunday school teacher in our class, when I met with him, I said, all right, what do you think those sixth grade boys are thinking about you when they find out about this? And I talk about them one by one, the names. Think about the impact your, your example is going to have him. And then I talk about his kids one by one. Then I talk about his wife. Then I talk, I mean, I'm trying to build the guilt uh, for the purpose of aiding the person's repentance. When we head down a path of rebellion toward God, we are short-sighted. You know, when people are unfaithful to their spouse, they're just focusing on the, the, the immediate joys that they just experienced or they're anticipating, but they're very short-sighted. I mean, they're not thinking about what Thanksgiving is going to be like or Christmas celebration is going to be like for the years to come. They're not thinking about what the relationships are going to be like with their kids years from now and so forth. So talk about the potential impact on people he cares about. And then related to that is build the guilt in an effort to aid his repentance. Um, You can talk about the kind of testimony he's had in the past. You can talk about past positions of spiritual influence. Um, You may even talk about uh, the positions where he's preached or taught the word of God. And you may even talk about uh, his past experience. One of the things that um, I have found as a counselor that as I'm getting to know many people, they talk to me about the fact that their parents divorced, and I've never had any counselee tell me that their parents divorcing was a positive experience for them. Now, maybe some were, and I just didn't ask the question, but usually people talk about how they struggled with anger and bitterness and how it messed up family relationships going forward and so forth. And so you can talk about how... If, a, if you know the person you're talking to and they come from a broken family and now they're committing acts that are going to lead to tearing up their current marriage, say, didn't you come from a broken marriage? Was that a good, good time for you? So this is what you're trying to put on your kids now? Um, build the guilt in an effort to aid his repentance. By the way, for those of you who have divorced in your past... If you repent well of any sin that you committed that contributed to the breakup, including if you gossiped and slandered and uh, harbored bitterness and so forth, but if you repent well, that provides a wonderful model for everybody that knows you and your circumstances about the difference that Christ can make when we're going through times because we all have a hall of shame. We all have a 
part of our life where we wish we could do that one over again. But if we handle according to God's way, it can become a strong positive witness for the future. All right, moving on. Uh, I'd also describe the purpose and process of church discipline and what's going to happen next and when. This would be related, I think, particularly to those in spiritual leadership of the church. I remember one time I was talking to a guy that um, at one point I had been in his home, their home, multiple times evangelizing them. And I had the privilege of being in uh, their home when both this man and I call him Ray for a name. Uh, when Ray and his wife both accepted Christ, they later became active members of our church and uh, were greatly loved, faithful members. But after a few years, he began to drift, and I noticed, and I started f- showing concern. Long story short, I later find out that he and his wife were having difficulty. Then she tells me she thinks he's committing adultery, and uh, I'm not seeing him at church anymore. And I finally track him down. And we have a meeting, and he admits that there's another woman in his life and um, that he's planning to leave his wife. And I tell him, if you leave your wife and if you file for divorce, I say, when you go public with your sin, we are going public with discipline the next service. And because we'd already been involved in admonishing him, and uh, he'd been a part of our church long enough that he'd seen church discipline carried out, and he said, he said to me just in this flippant way, he said, well, just go ahead and take me off the church rolls if you want. I don't care at this point. And I said to him, I said, oh, Ray, we're going to do a whole lot more than that. We're not going to take, we're going to dismiss you from our church membership, but that's not all. We're going to turn you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. I mean, spiritual discipline is a big deal. And it's not just a matter of your name being taken off the church roll. And if an elder or anybody ever talks to you about, listen, you better repent or we're going to dismiss you from our church. It's not just the church role. It's turning you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. Here's another one. Pray fervently with him and for him. I love doing team counseling. And I'm accustomed oftentimes that if I'm the counselor sitting here and the counselees are sitting there, I'm accustomed to having a couple of trainees sitting at the end of the table. And there have been times when we've gone into a counseling session where I've told my trainees, I think the husband, I think this may be our last time to talk to the husband. And if he communicates that he's not coming back, I said, at the end of the session, I may say to him, listen, we all want to pray for you. We're really concerned about you going forward. And I said, if I ask you to pray... I don't want some short prayer like you might say at the restaurant before you have your your meal. I mean, I want you to cry out to God for this guy. And when you're done, you're done, and then I'll finish. And I want that guy walking to his car remembering three people just pleading with God for his soul. And if you're working with somebody who's spiritually cold and rebellious, you might think about how they could at least hear you pray in a fervent way for them and maybe other people. Well, here's the last one. Assure him of your ongoing love and concern. Make sure they have your cell number. Tell them you can call me anytime, day or night. If I can get to you, I'll help you. I love you, and I want to help you. Those are some strategies for dealing with the spiritually cold and rebellious. Trust that will be helpful to you. Thank you for your careful attention. You've listened well. I appreciate that.